Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're with us today and ready to study the Bible. That's what we're here to do is answer Bible questions, help you know your Bible a little bit better. So the way we operate is we've got a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. You can use either one of those anytime to get in touch with us and let us know what you'd like us to talk about. We get questions directly from the Bible, some verse or topic or doctrine that people wonder what the Bible says about it. And we get a lot of life questions and current event questions, uh, things that people may have heard about the Bible and wonder, is that really true? Uh, we'll try to find an answer for you. So that's the way we operate. And uh, we look forward to answering as many of your questions today as we can. Let me introduce my partner here, Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're here and ready to go. And we've got lots of good questions come up, uh, ready for to be answered. But we always give a question first for uh, our audience. And this one is, what food did Jesus cook for breakfast? Some of you may not even know Jesus cooked breakfast one time, but he did. And uh, we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. So if you and your family know that little bit of Bible trivia. A little hint, he was not an omelet guy. So <laughs> my, help him out that My way. guess, but <laughs> we'll find out later. All right, I said in the opening that we get a lot of questions. Uh, people have heard something and mm -hmm. wonder if it's really true. Sure. I think your first one is one of those. Yeah, well, occasionally <laughs> we'll get something, a uh, question along these lines from a viewer and they want to know where does it say black and white people can't intermarry? And my short answer for that is it doesn't say that. Uh, there are some specific scriptures that were directed to the Israelite people, and it, the purpose of it was uh, to forbid them from intermarrying with other nations, but the, 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 that was the command, but the purpose of it was uh, for uh, religious reasons, not racial. Um, the uh, Abraham, Abraham's uh, followers, uh, the Jewish people, uh, were to have one God and to follow Him and Him alone. And the land that they lived in was surrounded by people who worshipped many gods, many different gods, foreign gods, and God didn't want them intermarrying because many times you had one family connecting with another and one of the provisions of that arrangement was to you take on each other's gods, and God uh, is a jealous God, and He didn't want any uh, any other gods involved in the lives of His people. Uh, and of course, that's what happened whenever they would intermarry uh, with other um, nations. Uh, they took on their foreign religions, began to worship idols, uh, and uh, began to do the very things God commanded them not to. So that was the reason for the warning. Uh, one of those is found in Deuteronomy 7. It's not going to be on your screen, but if you're interested, you can look it up at home. And uh, in chapter 7, he lays it out pretty clearly, the specific nations that they were not to intermarry with. And in verse 
3 and 4, he says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So uh, there's no restrictions. Uh, under, of course, that was under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant in the church today. And uh, there's no restrictions of uh, one race intermarrying with another. Uh, there are always cultural differences, family differences. Uh, those are things you have to pay attention to as, as you would with any marriage and, and understand that when you bring two cultures and two families together uh, that are different, uh, there's going to be some differences that come up in the marriage and you just need to be aware of those. But there's no restrictions of any type uh, in the New Testament uh, for those of us in Christ. Uh, let me give you a verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Uh, uh, Paul says, There's no Jew or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in the body of the church, uh, there's a great number of people from all nations, from every tribe. And uh, But uh, to answer the question, there's no restrictions on marriage. All right. It's one of those things that people have heard that the yep. Bible says this. Well, that mm -hmm. doesn't. <laughs> yep. Just needs a little bit just looking at the scripture. Yep. All right. Got an interpersonal relationship problem here. If you apologize to a person, but they won't accept the apology, will you be forgiven by God? All right. Now, first part of that question sounds like a Dr. Phil kind of question. <laughs> uh, if you apologize and somebody won't accept it, what do you do? Uh, but the last part of the question makes it a Bible question. Will you be forgiven by God? Uh, and my answer is yes, assuming that the apology is sincere and your heart is right and all of that. Uh, what others think, how others respond, we don't have any control over that. Uh, we do what's right. We do the best we can. If we've uh, hurt somebody, offended somebody, done something wrong, uh, we need to apologize to them. We need to go try to make it right. In fact, the Bible says that. If you got something against a brother, then go talk to them. Uh, try to get that handled and work the problem out. Uh, but some people won't let you work things out, and you just can't control it. So uh, the forgiveness between people takes two people wanting to cooperate. Forgiveness between us and God is a whole other matter. Uh, forgiveness between us and God is about our heart, and God knows our heart. So if you're sincere, if you apologize, if you're sorry for what you did and want to make it right and try everything you can, uh, God will forgive you. That's, uh, that's not the problem. Now, as far as the interpersonal relationship, uh, continue to pray for that person. Uh, try to treat them like things are okay. Uh, mainly pray for them and maybe they'll come around someday and see that your heart is right and maybe they'll fix their heart. So uh, do what you can, but if your heart's right with God, then that takes care of the problem. Okay. Uh, where do you find it? Question. A viewer asks, where can I find where Jesus asks, uh, who do you say that I am? And uh, this is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now, a little bit of context here before we look at the scripture. Um, Jesus was growing in popularity, uh, both uh, by his friends, by his disciples, people who followed him, 
but also I think by lots of people who were curious. Uh, he, there was a lot of people hearing about the miracles that he had done, the way in which he answered the religious leaders of the day. Uh, certainly his enemies were uh, very intrigued, always trying to trap him, always trying to figure out who is this guy and what is his, uh, what is his purpose, what is his agenda here. And uh, people thought different things, obviously. And we uh, get the biblical perspective in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and he was very clear about who he was and what he came to do. Uh, there was no... Uh, ambiguity on Jesus's part with regard to who he was and what his purpose was here in this world. But he had an occasion uh, to ask the disciples, uh, who, would, who do people say that I am? And then he, he kind of got down to Peter and he said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And uh, this is where the, we catch up to the story in Matthew chapter 16, which is on the screen for you right now. Uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, now, uh, people thought that the, the, these prophets, or uh, that, that Jesus had returned in the power of, of these old prophets and uh, that he was doing the things and speaking as powerfully as they did and uh, believed that these possibly had returned. And Jesus said, uh, or Peter said, you know, some people say you're Jeremiah, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're one of the prophets, and we'll continue. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 on the screen. Um, and some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the cool thing is, uh, Peter is exactly right. And Peter's kind of known for saying the, the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. But here he said exactly the right thing, exactly the right time. And Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you, Peter, uh, using uh, some terminology here. You're, you're a small rock. You're a, you're a uh, Petra. But uh, the, this confession that you've made that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, on that confession I'm going to build my church and, of course, we know if you want to, to be in Christ and be a part of his body, you have to confess his name and to believe, exactly as Peter did, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. So uh, that's where it's found, and uh, that's what that's all about, Jesus identifying who he was and what he came to do. All righty, let's talk just for a moment about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, we like studying the Bible for 30 minutes each week, and hopefully you learn a few things about the Bible. Uh, but if you spend... 30 minutes on your own or an hour uh, in the Bible, you'll probably learn a whole lot about what God has to say for you. So that's what we advocate is home Bible study. We've got some free materials that we're happy to provide, and they are absolutely free. Uh, don't charge you a thing for them. It just takes a little bit of your time to sit down and go through these lessons. You see one set of lessons on the screen now. We've got other courses, too, that we go on to, but this is where you start. It's a course that's just a good introduction of the Bible. It uh, starts with the Old Testament and the New Testament, helps you understand those two big parts of your Bible, and uh, then takes you into other topics of the Bible. So when you're done, you'll have a pretty good grounding, a good understanding of what the Bible's all about, and uh, 
hopefully you'll have formed a regular habit of Bible study and be ready to keep on going with some other courses. But uh, you can learn about a lot about the Bible with our Know Your Bible Study helps, and we're happy to provide those. All you have to do is call or log on and say, I want that free course, and we'll get it in the mail for you, and you can start learning the Bible on your own. All right, uh, my question is about forgiveness again. Got another forgiveness question. I've had two abortions and have asked God for forgiveness. How do I know if I'm saved or if I'm going to hell? All right, obviously there's uh, some lingering guilt there, and we understand that. Uh, let me break it down. I think there's really two questions there. Uh, the first one was about, I've had two abortions, and I've asked God for forgiveness. Uh, you've sinned, and that's not unusual. We all sin. Uh, we're all sinners. All of us have. Uh, sin is sin. Uh, some sins have greater consequences than others. Uh, some sins produce more guilt, as I'm sure you're aware of by the reason you're asking this question. Uh, but sins, sin. And God forgives sin. That's what he's in the business of. So whatever you've done, uh, as horrible as it may seem to you or as much guilt as you may be carrying because of it, uh, be assured that God is a God of forgiveness and no sin is too great for him. Paul's said himself, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner there ever was because he killed Christians or helped Christians be killed. And he said, I'm the chief of sinners, but God forgave me. So that's the first part of the question. And I'll say, God forgives sin. Now, the second part is, how do I know that I've been forgiven? How do I know that I'm saved and I'm not going to hell? Uh, and I'm going to put that in two pieces also. Uh, the first part is initial forgiveness. Uh, to be forgiven, you have to be a child of God. You have to be in Christ. That's where forgiveness is. You have to come into contact with His blood, which is the only thing that saves us. And the Bible tells us how to do that. We talk about it a lot on this program. Uh, people ask, what do I have to do to be saved? Just like they did in the Bible. And we use Bible scriptures uh, to show you the answer, probably the most succinct one that I can show you uh, is in Acts. And the people there had sinned. They had crucified Jesus, which is pretty bad sin. Uh, and once they figured out what they had done, they realized it. They asked Peter, what do we do? And in Acts 2.38, Peter gives them the answer to that question. Uh, how can I be forgiven? So let's look at Acts 2.38, starting with 2.37 actually. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So there's the question. And Peter replied, here's the answer, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's the answer. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, that's initial forgiveness that puts you into Christ. Uh, that wipes all your sins away. Now, secondly, once you're in Christ, once you're a Christian, you're a follower of Him, uh, you've received His grace, guess what? You're probably going to sin again. 
You're probably going to keep sinning in some way. Hopefully you work at it and you, you get more Christ-like and you sin less, but uh, you're still going to mess up. Uh, so what happens then? You don't have to be baptized again. You don't have to go back for that initial forgiveness. But the Bible also tells us what we do then. And John is discussing it in 1 John. So let's look at what he said in 1 John 1, 9. He said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when you sin and you know it, you realize it, uh, confess it. Talk to God about it. Say, God, I messed up. I need your grace on this again. Uh, I'm sorry. I repent, but I've messed up. So that's the answer. The initial forgiveness, uh, repent and be baptized. That puts you into Christ. Once you've been forgiven and are in Christ, then you need to uh, recognize when you sin again and ask God for forgiveness, and he'll give it to you. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yes, God is a God of forgiveness. How do you know you're saved? You do what the Bible says to do, and uh, trust in God for his forgiveness. All right, good answer. Uh, if you were asked this question, uh, how does uh, the year in the Bible compare to today's year? And my answer is to that is the Jewish calendar and the Roman calendar were uh, a different, but they were pretty close. Um, the Roman calendar, of course, that's the calendar we use, and uh, it's um, uh, just a little over 365 days, and every leap year we add a, a day in to square things up. A Jewish year was approximately 360 days. Essentially, a month was uh, 30 days, and you can determine that by looking at the story in Genesis 7 and 8, the story of the flood and how they count out the days and uh, when you do a little bit of simple math, a simple arithmetic there, you can see that it was um, basically 30 days uh, accounted for the Jewish month. And so uh, they were pretty close. Uh, they weren't, you know, of course, they celebrated different holidays and had different names for their uh, months and so forth than we do. Uh, and that's, uh, but as far as the t a time when you put a total year together, pretty close uh, to what we have and know today. Uh, of course, it's different, and the holidays that they celebrate and the traditions that they had uh, that were connected, and that's a, a fascinating study as you look through the Old Testament and, and the celebrations that God uh, asked them to put in. They were uh, done to remember, uh, in particular, what God had done. And, uh, and the feasts and the celebrations uh, all pointed them back to the Lord and times of remembrance. So I think that's a good thing. Of course, we do that in our calendar uh, on this side of things. Um, and, uh, but as far as the comparison, pretty close, just a little bit off. Um, and you can look at Genesis chapter 7 and 8 and do the math there and see that's where we get that from. I hope that helps. All righty question about graven images here. Explain the graven image commandment in relationship to today. All right, I think I understand what the viewer wants to know. What what's graven images have to do with us today? And obviously this person remembers the Old Testament stories of the Israelites making a golden calf and uh, other pagan people making idols carved out of wood or stone or metal. 
and those were obviously graven images. Well, do we have any graven images around today is what our viewer wants to know, I guess. Uh, let's look at it this way. When God gave the Ten Commandments, uh, the first thing he said was, he said, have no other gods before me. I am the only God. Don't have any other gods. And then he went on, and depending how you count the commandments, it was either part of that or it was the second one. He said, don't make any graven images. And don't worship them, don't bow down to them, uh, all of that. So two separate things. Don't have other gods and don't make graven images. Uh, what the Israelites did when they made the golden calf was Moses had gone up on the mountain and he was gone. Uh, they couldn't see him. They couldn't see God. They wanted something to focus on. They wanted something to say, there's God. So they made a golden calf and worshipped it. And God says, don't do that. Uh, he punished them for doing that. Don't make graven images. And graven means carved or engraved or uh, cut out. So don't make a physical image and try to worship it. Try to represent me. Uh, so today, Christians, most of us don't have a problem with wanting to worship Baal or Ashtoreth or a golden calf. Uh, that doesn't enter our head. We don't think of that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, there are some religions, there are some places in the world that have images and statues that they worship. Uh, but in general, we don't seem to have that problem. So what's a graven image today? Well, if you look at the concept of trying to represent God physically and give you something to focus on, something to worship, something to pray to maybe, uh, that would be where we could get in trouble and have a graven image, if you wanted to call it that. If we have something, an icon or a statue or a, a, a picture or something that we begin to think of as how we contact God, how we pray to or something like that, uh, we're minimizing God. We're bringing him down to our level. Uh, God is so much bigger than we can represent that we ought to recognize that and pray to the God of the universe and realize that we can't put him in a little box, a little statue, a little picture, a little anything. So it's more a matter of an attitude of the heart. If you have something that you've begun to trust in, you think, well, that's where God is, then you might be heading toward the graven image problem. So I uh, hope that explains it a little bit. In general, we Christians in America don't have a graven image problem, uh, but we might have a mentality that leads us that way on something. All right, let me take just a moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. Churches of Christ keep us on the air, and we like to recognize a few of them each week. Uh, let me mention two from the... Uh, other markets that we're in. Uh, one is the Springfield, Missouri market and the Watermill Church of Christ uh, there is our partner and a uh, great bunch of folks and uh, uh, I know you'd be welcomed there and there are folks that uh, take care of our Know Your Bible business in that part of the country. And then in Burlington, Iowa, down on South Roosevelt, a great bunch of Christians there uh, and folks that uh, oversee the Rock Island and Iowa 
market up there. So if you're looking for a church home, visit one of those. If you know somebody that attends one of those congregations, maybe somebody at work or school that you know goes there, tell them, say, I saw you on TV the other day. I watched that Know Your Bible program and appreciate you keeping it on the air for us. So give them a shout out and we like to thank them for helping us stay on the air. Visit the Church of Christ anywhere you are and in your market, there's probably one close to you. All okay. right. A uh, viewer asked the question, when the soldier pierced Jesus' side, it says blood and water flowed out. What is the significance of the blood and water? Okay, this account is found in John chapter 19, verses 31 through 35. And I think actually there's several things going on here with John's account and, and several reasons for him doing that. Uh, first of all, there was a, a medical explanation for those who would understand what was happening, um, uh, those who were flogged uh, in the, under that horrible, terrible crucifixion syst uh, system that they went through. Um, th something was happening to the body. People went into something called hypovolemic shock, a, a term that refers to the, the blood volume in the body. And there, he had just lost so much blood, having already been flogged. And uh, he was going into shock. He's uh, collapsing. He's not able to fully carry the cross. He's extremely thirsty. And uh, there's obviously fluid around the heart. I think it's testifying to what physically happened to Jesus, which was certainly horrible. But the worst part, of course, the, of the crucifixion was not the physical, but the spiritual. I think the second thing that John's doing in, in putting this account in John chapter 19, he's confirming his eyewitness. And he does this in several places through his account. And he gives extra details. So, for example, in another place he talks about the five loaves in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, John says there were five barley loaves. Just an extra detail there. And Jesus, or John would have had to have been close enough to Jesus to have seen uh, this happen when the soldier pierced the side of his, uh, the, uh, the teacher whom he loved and, uh, and the water and the blood flowed out. So I think it was confirming what happened to Jesus physically, confirming his eyewitness account, and he's testifying that Jesus was really dead. And that seems strange to us, but there was a heresy going around saying, well, Jesus wasn't really resurrected because he sort of just passed out on the cross. He didn't really die, and he just came to later. And so John's not only testifying to his death, but also to his resurrection. Uh, let's look at what John wrote later in 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It not only tells us who Jesus was, but uh, that he fully died and he was fully resurrected. And John was an eyewitness to that account. So I hope that helps. All right. Last question. Is it true there aren't any marriages in heaven? Well, sounds kind of like it. Jesus would ask a question about uh, marriage in heaven. Here's what he said, Luke chapter 20. Verse 34 to 35, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And there can be no, then they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So Jesus says at least there won't be any weddings in heaven. Uh, nobody's going to be given in marriage. 
Now, what that means for our existing marriages and our relationships and all that, we don't know. We know God will work it out. There will be no tears. Everything will be fine. Uh, but marriages won't be needed in heaven. Uh, marriages are for procreation and for companionship and completion. And in heaven, all that's going to be taken care of. So probably, uh, certainly no weddings, maybe no marriages in heaven. We'll see. Trivia question, what food did Jesus cook for breakfast? And believe it or not, he cooked some fish for the apostles. And you can read that in the Bible. We're glad you've been with us today and hope you'll be back next week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.